right, now I feel a little better, although I'm a little loud in the mic there. TJ, can you turn me down? So what do you think about that? New Day Community Church, London, England. The pulpit was off-center. It just throws me off. So, Does that, does that feel better for everyone? <laughs> All right. <laughs> London, England, yeah. This is, we're really just doing it for a good, good excuse to go to, to, go to London frequently. <laughs> uh, but no, there's a couple there, uh, if I can just elaborate. The, the prayer meeting is going to be here, but we're going to have a video link with uh, people in South Carolina praying and uh, the team that's in London, England. And so the reason it's 3 o'clock is because that means it's... Uh, I don't even know what time it is. Huh? 8 o'clock? 8 o'clock in London. <clears throat> so they're gathering at 8. We're gathering at 3. Uh, so it'll be exciting. And there's a couple there, Mike and Lucy Nunn, who's actually been connected with this church for quite a few years. Uh, one of the first church plants we did was up in Grand Rapids with um, Ron and Kim, Kim Sipsick. And Mike and Lucy tried to come to be part of that church plant, but they were unable to come for various reasons, uh, primarily immigration laws. And, uh, <clears throat> and then when the Joneses started their church down in South Carolina, they, they, uh, they visited many times and again tried to come to be part of that church plant and it just didn't work out. So we figure, well, we'll just plant a church in England and they can be the lead team there. And so it's an exciting development. God's doing a lot of good things. Aren't you, aren't you happy to be part of what, really, I mean, we are, you know, we're not a huge church in the sense of a, a numeric attendance on Sunday morning, but in the connections that we have literally worldwide. And it's, I'm just excited and just to be part of this church and all of the churches that we're connected with. Well, I want to jump into the uh, message. We're talking this, uh, this month on hearing the voice of God and this quarter on intimacy. <clears throat> and that's one of our core values. <clears throat> In fact, um, let me use my clicker. The clicker is not working. There you go. There we go. Okay. So the core values, uh, which we uh, sum up in the acronym FIRE, and that's part of our association, Partners in Harvest, uh, um, um, uh, not logo, slogan, whatever you want to call it, uh, spreading the fire of God's love. It's part of our, our vision statement, our mission statement, spreading the fire of God's love. And the fire is um, the Father Heart message. That's what F stands for. The I is intimacy with God and with one another. R is restoration of our body, mind, and spirit. In other words, healing. We'll get into that next quarter. <clears throat> and the final is the extending uh, of the kingdom through equipping and evangelism. And so we're just taking a quarter uh, each uh, quarter this year and kind of just really diving in deep. Uh, the word and this quarter is on intimacy. So today, my challenge is to, to kind of talk about intimacy as a core value and how hearing God's voice connects to that. And, um, and so I'm going to show you that. The word intimacy, surprisingly, is not in Scripture. I couldn't find it. And I'm sure there's, I think it's in the message one time. But <clears throat> if you search the New King James or the NIV or the traditional uh, 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 translations, that word isn't used. But the idea is, is used throughout. In other words, it's, it's a kind of a more 
uh, contemporary word, but the idea how we use intimacy is is throughout Scripture. It means the condition of being intimate. Okay, this is what intimacy means. A close association or familiarity relating to one's deepest nature. Do you think the Bible talks about that? Yes? No? Yes! Uh, Well, what is essential or innermost? And so intimacy is what Scripture is all about. It's what God's all about. It's what Jesus came and dealt with. It's what Christianity is all about. And there's four types. If you study intimacy, especially if you um, deal with counseling or relationships, this is a good thing to know that there's there's different types of intimacy. There's uh, it's generally broken down into four categories: physical intimacy, emotional, cognitive, or intellectual, and experiential. Let me just kind of touch on each one of these. These are actually, it's a big idea. It's a good thing to know. I'm not going to take the whole message to delve into this. Oh, it'd, be, it'd be worthy of a whole series. Physical intimacy is simply being close, you know. <clears throat> you know being, I'm physically in you, you, you are, You're very intimate now. Probably uncomfortably so for him. A bit. <laughs> <laughs> or, or physical intimacy. Woo! Physical intimacy between Aaron and Adrian. Even more so, right? Between a husband and wife. That's physical intimacy. But you know what? You can have physical intimacy without any emotional intimacy. Can't you? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people are in relationships that that might be how it's described, and it's, and it's destructive, actually. Uh, emotional intimacy is, is having that emotional connection, having close association and familiarity on an emotional level. Now, you can have emotional intimacy without physical intimacy. Okay? That's called friendship. <laughs> okay? Uh, and, and, uh, and other relationships. In, in any type of relationship, you can have emotional intimacy. Cognitive and intellectual is one that we don't think of, and that's, that's uh, intimacy in which, you, in which you think alike. That you're in agreement. That uh, the way you process information and the things that you believe, um, uh, that there is a, a closeness. And so you, you, you like being around people like that because you talk the same language and <clears throat> you work easily together. It's an important aspect of, of intimacy. And then experiential intimacy is another, a little less uh, commonly understood, but it's when you do things together. For example, you can get people from all different types of backgrounds with different belief systems, um, different uh, uh, job, different economic status. Put, put, uh, how many guys are on a baseball team? Put nine guys from all different demographics on a baseball team and after a season, especially if they win, (laughs) right? They're going to be intimate. In a, in a unique way, because they've experienced something together. We see this when we take mission trips. Uh, we get a bunch of people, be, at the beginning of the trip, many people hardly know each other. By the end of the trip, boy, there's a bond, because you've experienced something. And so, <clears throat> all four types of uh, intimacy, by the way, are important aspects to prioritize in your marriage. All right, uh, and in other relationships, like your relationship with your children, in other words, find ways to grow in, in intimacy in all four categories, and you'll have a, a deeper relationship. But God wants us to have intimacy uh, in all four of these cademacy, uh, categories with Him as well as with one another, and, and we value 
intimacy, another we being this church, we put a high value on understanding and pursuing uh, intimacy with God and intimacy with one another, the fullness of what all of that. Because Christianity was never intended merely to be an outward religious system. It was intended to be a place where you can enter into deep relationships, uh, deep unity, deep community. Faith is about um, interacting on our deepest level, uh, about meeting our deepest needs and, and, and acting out through our deepest nature. And it's an intimate relationship with God and others where that happens. In fact, if you think of Jesus's, you know, the call that Jesus made when he encountered people, he never said, say this prayer, you know, confess my name, right? We have that's a biblical truth. What, what did Jesus say when, when, he, when he wanted someone to enter into relationship? He said, follow me. And what did that look like for the, for the disciples? For Peter and Matthew? He, they literally walked with him, ate with him, lived with him. But more than that, they lived with all the other disciples. Right? And we, have, we know the story about the twelve. A lot of people don't realize it wasn't just the twelve. And, and I, I w- went through the Bible series. I haven't seen the Son of God movie. How many have seen it? One? Really? Only one? Two? <clears throat> well, I hear it's really good. You go find someone who's not a believer and take them to it. Right? Seriously. Uh, but... Uh, uh, in, the, in, the 12, in the the Bible series, you know, they had Jesus in the twelve a lot. But what they didn't have is actually there was there was seventy that he trained up and sent out, and that there, there were hundreds more that were called his disciples that went with him everywhere he went. And so there there was a community of believers that intimacy with Jesus. Uh, demanded you couldn't be intimate with Jesus without being intimate with his group of friends because he was always with a group of his friends or his disciples. Does that make sense? All right, well, it's the same today. That's what intimacy is. It's intimacy with God and intimacy with one another. Okay, let's <clears throat> kind of zero in on Jesus talking about this idea of intimacy. And this is from what's known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Um, it's in John 17. It's just before he's arrested in, in the whole um, uh, passion narrative of his uh, trial and crucifixion. And so Jesus is talking to the Father and he's interceding for the church, really. He says, I do not pray for these alone, uh, these being those, his followers, who is just uh, praying for uh, the the men and women who are immediately with him. He says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And you know who that means? Us. Yes! Us! Thank you! <laughs> we believe in Jesus through the words and the works of of the disciples, right? Everything we have written in Scripture. Jesus didn't write this book. Other people did. His followers did. Thank God for faithful men and women who recorded and lived out the faith. And so Jesus is praying specifically for you and for me. Says, um, who believe in me through their word, <clears throat> that they all 
may be one, all being the ones who are alive when Jesus prayed this, and every man, woman, and child who comes into relationship with Jesus through their word, through God's word that's been transmitted throughout the ages, through their lifestyle, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They, They also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. That they may be one, just as we are one. Again, he kind of repeats the same idea. I in them and you in me. That they may be made perfect in one. See a repetition of the word one? Alright, it's got, Jesus is trying to make a point here. Alright, God's trying to communicate the importance of oneness, of unity. That they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Alright, we're going to read this same passage in the Message Translation, which is a very contemporary rewording of it. Uh, It says this, I'm praying not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me because of them and their witness about me. The goal is for all of them to become one in heart and mind, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So as as we're reading through this, He's comparing our relationship with one another and with Him with the relationship between Himself and the Father. He's comparing our relationship with the relationship within the Trinity. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so they might be one heart and mind with us. The Father and the Son. And unmentioned here, but in the context, also the Holy Spirit. Then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me. Uh, The same glory you gave me, I gave them. Wow. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you have the same glory that the Father gave Jesus? It's a resounding silence. I I have a hard time believing that. I mean, what does that mean? Is Jesus telling the truth there? See, this is where we have to believe in faith that goes beyond the evidence of what we see. Wow! Once we start believing it, we can begin to see it. But there's a truth here. Jesus has given the same glory that He received from the Father. He's given it to them. So they'll be as unified and together as we are. Again, He reads it. I in them and you in me. Then they, they will be mature in this oneness. Then they'll be mature in this oneness. And give the godless world evidence that you've sent me and loved them in the same way that you've loved me. Wow. So the goal is intimacy. And the word that Jesus has used is throughout that portion to talk about intimacy is oneness. But the common phrase that we use is to express this idea is intimacy. I in them and you in me that they'll be mature in this oneness. That's the goal. That's the goal of Jesus' high priestly prayer. That's the goal of, of the church. That's the goal of life in Christ. By being in Christ 
and having Christ in us. Those are from different portions of Scripture. In one place it says that we are in Christ. And our life is hidden in Christ. And another place, in many places, that Christ in us, the hope of glory. By both of those dynamics, we're in Christ, but Christ is in us. We're brought through this relationship with Jesus into an intimate relationship with the Father. And to the point that we share in the unity that shared in the Trinity. Wow! Whether you experience that physically, emotionally, intellectually, cognitively, or physically, is really dependent on how much you believe this truth and act on it. But whether you've experienced it or not, because the Scripture says it, because this is what Jesus declared, it's true. All right? And it, by believing this truth and pursuing this truth is when we can begin to experience it. And that truth uh, changes everything. It's really what relationship with Jesus is all about. And that truth is that we're not uh, called into relationship with the Father and the Son as individuals only. I mean, there's, a, there's an important aspect that experiencing intimacy on an individual, um, personal level is you know you can't replace that but it's equally important to see this as i mentioned earlier that it's an intimacy that is shared with all believers and that's the church so it's a a, um, a community experience and it's one reason why we're in our the name of our church is new day community church is to emphasize the importance of the aspect of community personal relationship with christ is Absolutely essential. But included with that is a community expression of that personal relationship. And so intimacy with God and intimacy with one another. Alright, so we're going to talk about hearing God's voice and connect that with this whole idea of intimacy. Um, The reason we're focusing on hearing God's voice is because it is one of, if not the uh, primary ways intimacy is formed. Okay, hearing God's voice and communication is how you become intimate with uh, with anyone, really, and especially with God. And so we need to kind of begin by talking about intimacy with God through hearing His voice. And let's just explore this idea a little bit. Uh, another word for intimacy is communion. All right, and and uh, again, it's communion is not used a lot in our uh, in contemporary language. We think of it as the communion, like the Eucharist, uh, the, the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> but really, it's communion, living in unity, and it's a it's from the two words common union. Uh, common is that which is shared by all. So common is 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 something that is available or something that everybody shares. So it's something that's in common. That it's, it's what we have in common. And our unity is based on what we share. And I think this is an important aspect to have, especially in terms of relating to one another as Christians. And in this world... There's so many people that are in different places, but our unity is not based on being alike, but on sharing alike. Can you can you kind of think about the difference? 
Alright? In other words, we have intimacy, we have communion, we have community, not because we're all alike. Not because we all believe the same thing. Alright? Or look the same way. Or act the same way. But because we all share alike. What do we share? We share what we have in common. What do we have in common? Relationship with Jesus Christ. Alright? Relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what ethnicity, what economic uh, status you are. It doesn't even matter what political orientation you are. Alright? Because some people get really... They, they have a, some people have a difficulty untangling their political ideology with their theology. And that actually is kind of dangerous. Okay? You should know how your theology affects your political ideology and not make your political ideology define your theology. <coughs> Did I say that too fast? <laughs> Sorry, there's a lot of three-syllable words there. <laughs> All right. But you know what? Hey! We need to realize that we're in unity with people that we're not alike. How can that be? Because we share alike. We share. It's what we share together that makes us intimate, not the fact that we're all identical. And, oh, I don't want to be in a group that everybody looks like me and talks like me and, and thinks like me. All right? <clears throat> I would probably be irritated by that. I like diversity. I like people with different ideas, different opinions, because it challenges and broadens. Uh, And that we're all striving to find uh, what is truth, what is is right, what is God's way. All of it is done in relationship with the God who comes as our Father. He's the giver of all. And so it's all under the umbrella of God's gift. Uh, and so that's why we take, uh, we're taking the time to talk about uh, hearing God's voice. <clears throat> Communication is the means by which community and intimacy are developed. Having a solid grasp on communion with God or hearing God's voice is essential. In fact, one of the main books, Mark Berkler is the author, um, uh, and his book has influenced really the church worldwide on this idea of hearing God's voice. And it's actually called uh, Communion with God. All right? uh, that is, it sums up what uh, hearing God's voice as an individual, the goal is, is to develop that communion, that unity. And during this month and this quarter, other people are teaching. I think Seth taught last week and talked about the four keys to hearing God's voice. Uh, if you missed it, listen to it on the podcast. And we do workshops about that as well. I'm not going to go over those steps, but I'm, gonna, I'm talking more uh, of a general approach to and a general understanding of God's voice and God's word and this whole idea of intimacy. <clears throat> so, let's delve in. Kind of this is... Uh, Next part of the sermon is looking at what is the Word of God, what, what are we talking about when, I, when we're talking about hearing God's voice, what are we really talking about? First thing that is um, a non-negotiable that we believe that we must embrace in order to get everything else right is that the Bible is the only objective, authoritative standard for knowing the revealed Word and will of God. 
Alright? And, and nothing is on the level of authority as the objective written scripture. And, and we emphasize this. People that uh, hear about uh, uh, learning how to hear God's voice, learning how to receive or, or minister in prophetic ministry. Uh, people hear about prophecy and prophets. They get afraid because they think that it is in some way um, adding to Scripture uh, and uh, is is. And, and quite frankly, it can get destructive if it's not done in a healthy, submitted way. All right? And so in one sense, the fear of, of it is appropriate. But you don't, um, you know, the proper response to abuse, in other words, people have abused prophetic ministry. People have uh, prophesied things and called themselves prophets and been in, in gross error. But the response to abuse of something like prophecy is not disuse, right? But proper use, and so you you learn how to do it properly because it's it's all through Scripture. In fact, Scripture is the result of people hearing God's voice and recording it. <laughs> so to say prophecy is not scriptural is to contradict Scripture in itself. Yep. Does that make sense? <laughs> All right. <laughs> the whole of Scripture is prophecy. And, and we say it's the basis of our, our understanding with God. And so it's very important that we, uh, we do agree, and this is undisputed, and if anybody doesn't get this, then they're in error in this way, that the Bible is the only objective, it's the standard, it's the authority. But in the Bible, it teaches that God does more than what's written in the Bible. Alright? You know that? Do you believe that God does more than what's written in the Bible? Yeah, He does. Uh, John 21, 25 says this very clearly. It says, There are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And that was just what Jesus did while He was living and ministering in those three, year, three years of ministry. All right? So John says, Hey, we didn't write down everything that Jesus did. We just wrote down the, uh, the, the important parts to communicate the message that, that we were writing about. <clears throat> well, if that was true in Jesus' life, all the more true is it now as He's working in the lives of seven billion people on planet Earth. All right? It's not all written down. <clears throat> In another place... Oh, we're, we're, there you go. Oh, yeah. In another place, let me... Uh, <clears throat> yeah, this is right. I'm sorry. Uh, this idea is mentioned. First Corinthians chapter 2, uh, 9 through 10. It says, As it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now, Paul is quoting an Old Testament scripture. Before this verse, he was actually talking about the crucifixion. All right? And how... <clears throat> so the context of this verse, often we read this and think it's talking about heaven. We think it's talking about the afterlife. Oh, God has... It. You, no, you can't imagine what it's going to be like when you get to heaven. And you know what? That's true, but that's not the, really what the context of this verse is talking about. What he's talking about is that God's 
plan for each and every individual is beyond anything that you have ever heard of or read about. Okay, because this is equally av- uh, uh, openly available, right? Alright, so this verse is saying, man, there's all kinds of stuff that we haven't even heard of that is God's plans. God plans all kinds of stuff that is beyond what our knowledge is. But these things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. So Paul is saying, we get understanding of what God has prepared through relationship with the Holy Spirit, through hearing God's voice. Alright? And we understand how God's plans, none of it is contradictory, it's all the fulfillment of and submitted to what is written. Is this making sense? Am I communicating this? So there is, in Scripture, the understanding that Submitting to the authority of Scripture means that God is actively doing things that aren't specifically written in the Bible. Um, The Bible teaches we're to hear His voice, not merely read His book. And you can read, I believe it's uh, uh, John chapter 8, is it? Or John chapter 10, uh, um, where Jesus says, My sheep will hear my voice. Three times in that uh, chapter, he says, My sheep will hear my voice. Um, and so there's, there's an implication that there's a direct communication between Jesus and his followers. And in John 5, it says, the Father, and This is Jesus talking to the Jews who were rejecting him. It says, The Father himself who sent me has testified of me. Uh, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Now listen, the people that Jesus was talking to had read all of Scripture. Some of them had memorized the entire Old Testament. But Jesus is saying to them, you've never even heard his voice at any time, nor have you seen his form. But you, but you do not have his word abiding in you. They had memorized at least the first you know, five books of the Bible. Right? The Torah... But Jesus is saying, you don't even have His Word in you. Because whom He sent, Him you do not believe. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of Me. And so there's just a great uh, picture here that someone who has the Scripture might not be able to hear God's voice. And Jesus is... What I'm trying to pull out of the Scripture is this dynamic that we need to have. Jesus is not saying, don't read the book. He's saying the life in the book is found through hearing His voice. Through relationship with Him, with the Scriptures. That's where we get to the place where we really hear and understand and enter into an intimacy. Here it is in John 10. My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me. For example, this is just a real contemporary example. There's lots of examples of it. You know, God never says anywhere in the Bible that Cameron's supposed to plant a church in Vandalia. I guarantee you, I've read the Bible many, many times, alright? In fact, Cameron is not mentioned in the Bible. Aaron is. (laughs) Uh, So some of you have biblical names. Cameron's not one of them. (laughs) But uh, I heard God tell me to do that. I was right here. I was standing right there when God told me to do it. And I was like, what? I want to do that. And, uh, but it's consistent uh, with what's written in the Bible. 
go into all the world, right, and preach the gospel. Uh, um, it's consistent, I, and it's submitted. I submitted it to it. I took a year to submit it to everyone over me. It's aligned with what God is doing in my life and my passions. It's what I want to do. I love planning churches, starting new churches, building the church, and it's been confirmed in many ways. So I can say with, with 100% confidence, God told me to do that. All right. Even though it's something that's not written in Scripture. The reason uh, many of you believe that God speaks to us today, but I want us all to have a good theology and understanding of why that is, um, is actually biblical. In fact, we're more fundamental than the fundamentalists. All right. So if you ever talk to a fundamentalist that thanks prophecy is not for today, you can say, listen, you're not fundamental enough. <clears throat> I'm serious. I'm dead serious. Okay? <laughs> you call them a liberal. Alright? <clears throat> they are. They're liberal. They're not taking the Bible the way it was written to be taken. Alright. I got three words to tell you about. Because there's three words that are trans... Three primary words. There's actually more than three, but there's three primary words. For in Scripture, for Scripture. Okay? In Scripture, for the Word of God. Let's put it that way. The first is graphe. <clears throat> And that is what is written. Literally, what is written. And it refers to God's book. It's used 51 times in the, in the Bible, referring to the written Scripture. <clears throat> and it's almost always translated Scripture. <laughs> All right? So that re- talks about the written Word of God. It refers to both the New Testament and the Old Testament. Uh, and so that is... Scripture, And so when you talk about Scripture, in the Greek, they would use a specific word that was graphe, which literally meant the written word. The next, uh, oh, we find this. One example of the 51 examples is in Second Peter. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these sayings, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the scriptures. And so here, I, I picked this verse intentionally because it's a New Testament reference written by Peter, Okay, And in this, he actually is talking about Paul's writings, which comprises the majority of the New Testament. And he uh, compares it, and some people, including myself, read in here that he, Peter is, is saying Paul's writings are Scripture. He refers to Paul's writing equally with the rest of Scripture, which would have been at that time understood as, as Genesis through Malachi, the Old Testament. <clears throat> and so, the written Scripture... So here you have a, 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 an example in the Bible of the New Testament being equated with or on the same level as the Old Testament. And that, you know, it's hard to understand and many people twist it, but that's an example of the word Scripture being used in Scripture. The second word is logos. We should be familiar with this. It's a common Greek word. Um, And it, it is what is meant. Not just what is written, but what is meant. And it refers to God's message. And in fact, that's why the message is called the message. And, and, and uh, throughout the, the translation, the message, Peterson uses the word message instead of uh, word or, 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 or uh, story. He usually, he, that's the word he 
puts in to translate logos. It's used 330 uh, times, and it's uh, translated in many ways, account, communication, all kinds of things. Um, uh, Strong defines it as something said, but it includes the thought as well as the implications and the reasoning and the motive. So it's a much bigger uh, idea than just the, the words that were written or spoken. Um, it includes the thought processes and the intention. And John uses it as a title for Jesus. When he writes, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was God, and the Logos uh, was with God, and the Logos was God. So he actually uses it as a title for Jesus and uses it to equate uh, Jesus as God. So um, Jesus is the perfect representation of God, and, and, the, and Logos is it refers to that, the perfect representation, the full meaning. Um, <clears throat> uh, uh, it's the expression, it's like Jesus was the expression of Jesus. When we talk about logos, it's the, it's the real understanding of what God says and means. So today, in contemporary Christianity, especially in the charismatic church, this term logos is often used to reference what is written in the Bible. Because most people don't know the word graphene. Okay, and there's a popular teaching about 30 years ago uh, that talked about logos and rhema, and it's it's the teaching isn't accurate, and that logos and rhema are not specifically used only for those two ideas, but the ideas are consistent, and so I'm like, we can go with it. So logos is often referred to, oh that that's the logos, and rhema we'll get into a, in a minute. That's the next one. Uh, so logos is often used as a reference to what's written in the Bible. But the idea is that it's accurate to the objective nature of God's will, word, and way. It's accurate. Everybody say accurate. Okay, so logos is accurate to this, uh, the objective uh, word. And rhema is the last of the three words. And that means what is said. Okay, what was actually spoken. And it refers to God's voice, God's, God's book. God's message and God's voice. It's used 66 times, translated word or statement or charge. It's an utterance, um, especially something narrated, uh, something spoken. Um, But I like this, and I'm about done here. I only got one more slide, I think. Maybe two. The significance of Rhema, as distinct from Logos, is exemplified in the injunction found in Ephesians. Ephesians 6.17 It says, Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema, the Word of God. Alright? So pick up that sword. And in Ephesians, talk about in our battle with demonic forces and with the world. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, or the rhema of God. He didn't use graphe. He didn't use logos. He used rhema. And Vines... Uh, defines it says here the reference is not to the whole of the Bible as such but to the individual scripture which the spirit brings to our remembrance for use in time of need a prerequisite being the regular storing of the mind with scripture in other words Vines is saying the more you read this, the graphe okay and understand the logos then the more you'll have an opportunity for the spirit to call up a rhema word of God that will apply specifically to the situation you're in so that you know what God's Word is, what the response of God's Word is in the moment for the battle that you're facing. Does that make sense? 
tongues. Alright, so today, rhema is used for a personal word that someone hears from God. Again, if you get specific and do study the Greek, it's not always used for that throughout the Scripture. Just like logos is not always used for an objective word. Um, but these ideas are solid, and it's a good way to communicate the idea that rhema is a word that is heard and that's meaningful for the immediate Something God is speaking to you through your conscience, through revelation, through counsel. You can hear a rhema word by talking to a pastor or a friend. Uh, through a prophetic ministry that we offer, those are rhema words. Um, through whatever means God chooses. Listening to the radio and a secular song, God can pull out, it's happened to me, it's happened to many people, and all of a sudden it's God speaking to me. It's not something on the radio. I'm like, wow, that was God. And you just know it. All right. All rhema words must be submitted to the logos, the meaning, and defensible by the graphe. All rhema words must be submitted to the logos, God's objective uh, word, and, and the meaning, the understanding, the intention. And you need to be able to show someone in the graphe, the scripture, the basis for the rhema. Alright? So you hear God saying something, you have two more steps. You need to work that into God's logos, what God intends, the nature of God, the character of God is revealed through Jesus, and the graphe. Well, where is that in the Scripture? Alright? So God told me to go plant a church in Vandalia, but I found a way. Well, you know what? Planting churches is really biblical. <laughs> in fact, Jesus says, go into all the world. Is Vandalia in the world? Yep. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. Everything you hear must be consistent with God's word, will and way, able to prove it in what was written in the scripture. Finally, okay, <clears throat> we're going to have Aaron come up and, and lead a response. But intimacy is built with communication, uh, and we're intimate. Are we intimate enough with God to read his book, know his message, and hear his voice? Give your attention to Aaron for just a few minutes as he leads us in the closing. Yeah, thanks.